They're talking in Geneva, but there's another drone on its way. Europe's migrant crisis deepens, but what next for the Royal Navy's involvement? A new man in the Defence Committee chair, but what will Julian Lewis bring to the job? Educating Afghanistan, Lady Richard's 10-year project building schools, and 200 years on the Battle of Waterloo. Peace talks aimed at brokering a ceasefire in Yemen are continuing in Geneva, despite a series of bomb attacks in the capital, Sana'a. 30 people died in the blast, which targeted Shia mosques and offices belonging to Houthi rebels. Earlier this week, I spoke to Sky News Middle East correspondent Shireen Tadros, who managed to get into the city. She told me about what she'd seen. Well, we, before we got here, we were wondering what kind of state Yemen's going to be in, because, uh, of course, there has and very little access for foreign journalists. But it really is heartbreaking to see the city um, and what's become of it. Large parts of it is destroyed because of the airstrikes. But really, I think one of the things that people don't realize about what's happening in Yemen uh, is that it's not just about the airstrikes um, and the Saudi-led bombing. It's actually about the blockade that Saudi Arabia has imposed, essentially uh, putting Yemen under siege because they control both the air space and also there's a naval blockade. So very little goods are coming in. That means that there's very little fuel. There's almost no clean water. There is no electricity. So you can't pump the water from underneath um, the ground, the aquifer, to get any clean water. So every basic necessity, every basic need, be it food to water, is rationed. And life here consists of standing in long queues, sometimes for days, to get things that are so normal in the outside world, like fuel, like petrol, so on. Uh, And that's what people don't understand, I think, about the situation here, what uh, daily struggle it is. Apart from that, of course, you have in the South a civil war. You have street-to-street, house-to-house fighting between pro- and anti-Houthi forces. um, And you have the continuous uh, bombing, both by Saudi Arabia, and we also have to say that the Houthi rebels are firing missiles, anti-aircraft missiles, at Saudi planes that are often missing their target and causing civilian casualties. So now we're in a situation where 2,600 people have been killed in the past three months of this war. The UN say that half of those are civilians. And in Sana itself at the moment, who's in control and how stable does it feel there? In terms of security on the street, I would say it's certainly a stable um, environment. So, insofar as um, petty crime, if you like, because the Houthi rebels do have control um, over the city uh, and they maintain a, a presence, if you like, an armed presence on the streets. Uh, so, there isn't a lot of, in, in terms of looting and so on. That that's not really the problem here. The problem, of course, is more the bombing and and the blockade. Uh, but the Houthis are continuing to uh, control, if you like, not just Sana'a but also other cities and they're learning as they go along. Uh, They're learning how to rule because this is something that's very new to them. It's really only last year, the end of last year where they took control over the capital and then they've been spreading that control over the country. But you really get the sense here that they lack 
political experience or any sort of political vision for the country. Given the blockade you talk about, is there any aid getting in? There is aid coming in um, from various humanitarian agencies, the UN, um, the ICRC, um, MSF do great work here. So there certainly is aid coming in, but it is restricted. And I think the hard thing is that it trickles in. So you don't really know after you get a plane in or a boat in how long before you can get another boat or plane in. The other main problem that humanitarian agencies are complaining about is the lack of fuel, which means that, okay, you get your aid in, but how do you move it around the country? How do you get it to the worst affected areas? And that's why remote places in this country, uh, you know, aren't getting any aid. You mentioned that the Houthis are in control of Sana. Do you get a sense at all of how much support there is from the people? Are you able to get out there and talk to people and find out how they're feeling about that? Yeah, that is that's an excellent question, and it's one of, one of the things that have been hard about working here. Because to be honest, there is a minder, a Houthi minder, that is with that accompanies journalists, which is something we weren't necessarily um, you know told about before we came. And it has been difficult um, to ask people what they think when you have an armed Houthi. Uh, rebels standing right behind you. So, you know, that has been tough to gauge. But I, I must say, the times when I've been able to get out because I have some friends here um, and times when we've been able to lose our minder, people have expressed that they are very upset, not just with the Houthis, but also with Saudi Arabia. So that there, a lot of people that we speak to are sick of both. They welcomed the Houthis at the, at the end of last year when they came into Sana'a because they had all the right slogans, anti-corruption, anti-Islamist. But then they've shown that they are ruling with the same sort of iron fist and corruption, if you like, uh, as the former regime. So people are just fed up, tired, uh, and they certainly, the Houthis are certainly losing support. That was Sky News Middle East correspondent Shireen Tadros talking to me from Sana'a. Our defence analyst Christopher Lee is with me as usual. Hello, Christopher. Um, despite what Yemen's political parties are saying in Geneva that significant progress is being made. When you hear what she's saying on the ground, it looks pretty bleak. Well, it's supposed to be bleak. That's why you have sanctions. If it's not bleak, sanctions are not working. And that's what they understand in Geneva. This Geneva thing is talk about, they call it a peace to, uh, uh, talks. It's nothing, nothing to do with a peace at all. It's to do with a truce, trying to get some sort of truce. In the meantime, what, they, what has happened in the past 48 hours that Nasser al Washashi, uh, who was the head of al Qaeda in Yemen, was zapped by uh, a CIA drone. Uh, he's, the man that's taken over from him. Um, Qasim al-Rimi is now on the CIA's hit list um, from, a, a, from a basement in Langley, Virginia. The CIA are tracking mm. him already. Do you really get a feeling that, that, that this, this policy of, as you say, zapping people with drones is actually going to work? Well, the Americans would say that um, who the ones that are really doing it, and they've moved a new uh, uh, a launch pad for their predators. They've moved that into uh, Saudi Arabia now. Uh, they say, well, look, if, if you look at the moment, in the past sort of nine months, uh, they've hit the main leadership of al-Qaeda to smithereens. The fellow that's taken over at the moment, uh, Qasem al-Rima, is the bomb maker. Now, he is a, a major figure, but he's quite low down the list. And that is important that they believe that al-Qaeda could be leadership, mm. uh, leaderless rather, in, 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 in an important time, the time they're trying to talk. And that's the time to sort of try to get the, uh, the talks going. And just briefly, um, what's happening in Yemen, how does it fit in with the rest of the troubles in the region? Oh, it is. Where do you start? <laughs> I mean, it is where do you start. I mean, the most important thing, 
is that the people who are doing, apart from the, apart from the, the drones that are coming from the CIA, uh, really, or, or on the Joint Special Command in America, is that it's a regional reaction. So it is the Saudis, it is the Gulf Council that have got to take this. And if you went straight up the top of the region and start looking at what's happening in, for example, in, in, in Iraq and also to some extent in Syria, you'll find that the solution there is now being seen as a regional solution because the Iranians being brought in officially. EU ministers have failed to agree on a plan to distribute asylum seekers more equally across all 28 EU states. They'll try again at a summit next week. HMS Bulwark has been helping to rescue migrants crossing the Mediterranean since early May. This time last week, BFBS reporter Rebecca Ricks was on board watching the operation. Well, she's now back and she joins us here in the studio. Hello, Rebecca. What was it like? I imagine extremely busy. Yes, well, it was really busy. I mean, we arrived on the Saturday and by Sunday we were into a rescue, which turned out to be the Royal Navy's largest to date. I mean, got some figures here. There was 979 males, 117 female, nine of which were pregnant, and 47 minors. Mm. It really was a busy day for them, straight so, in. So you mentioned that the, the, pre- the high number of people who, have, who are pregnant there, but what, what state were they in generally? Um, well, most of them were in OK Health, considering, um, having spoken to the crew, they had seen um, cases of meningitis in the past, typhoid, and in pictures you may have seen the crew wearing face masks, gloves, coveralls, and that is a case of rescues, times of the essence, and you've just got to get them on board quickly and you don't know what you're getting. Um, but your usual things, dehydration, fatigue, um, with a bit of food and a bit of water, they were all right by the time we got them to Italy. And where were they coming from? They were coming from everywhere. On one of the boats, we had um, citizens from Sudan, Syria, Nigeria, Pakistan, Eritrea, even Morocco, um, some from Tunisia and Egypt. They really were coming from quite a, a range of places. Um, a lot of them were saying they're from Eritrea because they were under the impression they'd get a better chance at getting refugee status mm. than some of the other countries. And um, what did the crew actually tell you about how it was going? What was their impression? Well, bearing in mind they were due home a little while ago, um, they were actually very, saying it was very successful. They were really pleased to be on an operation. They do so much exercising. And a lot of them were just saying it was, it was a great joy to be able to save lives at sea, bearing in mind they go to sea daily. Mm. The MOD said this week that Bulwark is due to leave its deployment at the beginning of July, end of a 60-day deployment. What does that mean about Britain's involvement going forward? Well, I understand that a Royal Navy ship will be taking on the role. Um, as yet, that ship has not been... Uh, named, but it won't be anything like the size of HMS Bulwark, bearing in mind its sister ship HMS Albion is mothballed and HMS Ocean is already committed on exercise. Christopher, um, you've been in Italy talking about the migrants issue. What was said? Basically, looking forward, which could be as long as two years, unfortunately, what you need is what's called a standing naval force, i.e. something that's there permanently, standing there permanently. The contribution would be from nine NATO countries, mostly in the region, but the United Kingdom included. And there was a fellow there who was making a paper, and he was the former head of military uh, security in in, in Whitehall. You have two commanders at Rear Admiral level, so you can split this force into move it to the east, move it to the west, etc. You have a guaranteed uh, command and communication so you know what you're, how to do things, you know who to talk to, and if Americans want to talk to you, they, can talk, they know who to talk to. In other words, 
quite alive, but standing. It's there all the time. And what time. would it be doing exactly? It would be doing the, the same things. It would be the first and foremost things it would be doing. It would be receiving intelligence. And this is the clue to the whole operation, was the way that we decided which should go forward. And that's what we've now sent to the Italian government. It is the person has to have a control over all the intelligence that's going on from whether it be intelligence about people leaving Nigeria because Nigeria goes to Mali, Mali goes to uh, goes to Libya, etc. And it's the intelligence and then somebody decides what to do with that intelligence mm. and it's the only force that you would possibly have that would allow that and that's an upgrade of what's there at the moment. And all signs are that this problem is going to get worse before it gets better. If you look at the UN Refugee Agency's report out today it's recorded the highest ever number of people displaced by conflict. Almost 60 million people, that's 42,000 just over 42,000 every day. Yeah and, the, and there's a worse figure around at the moment which I've been trying to sort of sort out and see what the legitimacy of it is. It's this something like 40% of the world outside of China is either on the move or about to be on the move. And that suggests a huge instability problem for the future. Christopher, stay with us. Rebecca Ricks, thank you. Thank you. Sit rep with Still to come, the Afghan Appeal Fund celebrates 10 years of building schools in Afghanistan while female cadets graduate from Sandhurst in the sand. This is BFBS. Sit rep. Conservative MP Dr Julian Lewis has been elected as the new chairman of the Commons Defence Committee. He'll lead the cross-party team that scrutinises the work of the Ministry of Defence. Dr Lewis has already served on the committee for two years. He's also been one of the loudest Conservative backbench voices calling for increases to Britain's defence spending. Last month, when he announced he was running for the job, Dr Lewis told BFBS about his experience and his priorities. Over the years, I've uh, shown myself to be quite a strong defence campaigner. Most people would accept that the serious arguments about the renewal of the nuclear deterrent have had quite a lot from me involved in putting them forward, formulating them and advocating them. When it comes to the question of how much we should spend on defence, again, I've been very prominent in saying that defence is too low down the list of our national priorities. And I say this as a Conservative MP of 18 years standing, and I found that, much to my surprise, at a time when we were recommending that defence expenditure of other NATO countries should meet the minimum, we weren't prepared to give a long-term commitment to do that ourselves. Now, this is unprecedented, and therefore the main role of uh, anybody with a defence interest from any political party has to be to ensure that the government of the day is taking defence seriously enough. I'm not satisfied that that's the case at the moment. Dr Julian Lewis, the new chair of the Commons Defence Committee. Uh, uh, Christopher, mate of yours, isn't he? Well, he sort of... He, you know, listening to Julian Lewis, it sounds... I, I knew a cardinal in the Vatican once. It sounded exactly like him. Uh, and he, he, I don't know if that's he, uh, a good well, thing or a bad thing. Well, it is a bad thing, actually, because Julian Lewis starts off by saying, I'm a strong um, advocate of strong defence and more defence spending. I'm afraid that is not the role... Of the chairman, but he was speaking. Of the be, he committee. was speaking before he was actually uh, elected at that point, wasn't he? Yes, he was, and I won ten quid on the fact that he got elected. <laughs> uh, and that's the at the moment that's the best thing I can say. Only about ten him. quid. Only you ten weren't that qu sure then, were you? I was very sure, but I didn't have very much to put on. But listen, uh, you know, the, the important thing is um, the the he comes at a time when the defence debate has never been stronger, and it needs enormously good analysis. 
And he's good at that. He, will he is be, very uh, good at, uh, at an analysis. The other thing to remember that Julian, rather like my, the cardinal actually, uh, sometimes, like a lot of us, sometimes goes on a bit. <laughs> um, but it is for the first time. It's his job Speak to listen, yourself, to listen rather than to to say. And I think that's going to be quite interesting. Well, the former chief of defence staff, General Lord Richards, was busy planning military strategy in Afghanistan. His wife was busy doing her own thing for the war-torn country. Lady Caroline Richards set up the Afghan Appeal Fund 10 years ago to build or refurbish some of the country's schools. So far, it's set up 10 and an 11th is currently being built. Earlier on, I spoke to Lady Richards and asked her how it all began. I just felt, as the men were training to go to Afghanistan, that the wives and the families ought to know a bit more about Afghanistan themselves. So we were... I asked my husband if we could come to their... Uh, days when they had briefings on Afghanistan. And then the obvious next step was when we realised what a very poor country it was, that maybe uh, the families could do something to help. In a sense, we joined with the men, so when they got to Afghanistan, they gave us advice of what needed doing, and they actually found a school that was um, ragged tents and they said we can join together you fundraise at home and we brought school furniture and in in Kabul they helped clear the ground get new tents um, dig latrines so it was a bit of a joint effort to begin with so it's very much about creating schools uh, providing education for young people how important is it beyond combat operations to continue this work in Afghanistan perhaps as, as a debt to the country but also to make sure that the troops that went there that it wasn't in vain well I think it's vital and I I think it would be a tragedy if um everything that had been built up so far was lost. And um, I know my husband feels that it's not asking a huge amount um, for this country to re to remember what was done in Afghanistan and not, not to let it really go the way that we, we've seen happening in Iraq recently. How much of a challenge is it now and going forward to keep the public interested in donating into appeals like your own, given that the combat mission is over, given that the media attention is largely turned away from Afghanistan? I think, luckily, we've got a, a wonderful following of people who are genuinely interested to see... and They actually look forward to our annual newsletter to see how we're getting on. But I do think there's a danger that the country as a whole very quickly forgets what's happened there and much of what they read in the press was about war fighting. Um, the, there is an element though that I think the women of Afghanistan are making their voice heard through the new government and various institutions and I think um, that would really worry people if we started to hear of more attacks on women. There's, there's one notable one, um, a woman called Fakunda, who you probably remember was attacked. Indeed. And, and, and I think that would really upset people in this country that we've, we've come so far with Afghanistan and done so much there and that, that they had a really successful election. They've got a new president who's a very clever man 
and that the country is is coping. It, it, you know, it's building the government, and um, you know, the next we want the industry to work there and so they can put money into education themselves but there is this gap and we really mustn't forget the country it would be tragic that was lady caroline richards well i'm joined now by bfbs reporter charlotte cross who's just back from an assignment in kabul um that's another assignment but you have been to one of those schools in kabul haven't you charlotte Yes, I visited one in 2012, so it's in the middle of winter, so there were no children in the school at the time, but um, it was very interesting to see it. And I, I have been told in the past that the uh, the Afghan gentleman that uh, the Afghan Appeal Fund uses to go and build these schools, especially in places like Helmand, has had to go and sit down insurers' meetings with the Taliban to get their agreement to build them. Fascinating. Uh, she was talking there about the safety of women in Afghanistan. At the other end of the scale, you've been looking at the training of female officers for the Afghan National Army at what's been nicknamed Sandhurst and the Sand. What did you see exactly? Yes, well, this is the uh, the British-built, British, mostly British-funded um, Afghan Officer Academy in Kabul, which is brand new. Um, it, uh, Nine, uh, 263 ANA officer cadets have just graduated on Tuesday. For the first time, there were women amongst those uh, graduates. 19 of them were women. And a woman significantly won the Duntroon Sword, which is donated by the Australian government. And that's basically their equivalent of the Sword of Honour. Um, so for the first time, females passed out and the Sword of Honour went to a female. Um, I did go and see these women in the middle of their final exercise out in the field. They were alongside the men. Their platoons were into Integrated together, for and that the, worked. That worked, did it? It did work. I was really surprised, actually, because in the past it's all been very segregated. And there are two other officer training academies in Kabul where I've seen the women very segregated from the men. But here at the Anoa, they were working together. They've been working together for the last just year. at the Anoa. Yes, so that's what they call it. Uh, you made many trips to Afghanistan with the British military. What's the current security situation like there? Um, well. The impression I got was that security is a lot worse than perhaps it was even last summer. Um, there are, of course, fewer international troops there, so a lot of the security is now done by the Afghan National Army and the Afghan police, and um, perhaps it's not as good as it used to be or as rigorous. There seem to be more attacks on Westerners as well. The Taliban have said that in their new summer offensive they're going to target uh, foreigners in the city, so foreigners are coming under attack. Um, it's very difficult to do road moves now. A lot of the movement is by helicopter, and obviously resources are restricted, so that's quite um, difficult. Um, but international troops are also more risk-averse. They seem more unwilling to accept casualties in a war that is perceived to be over. Christopher, I'm guessing the, U the UK is not really going to be hearing an awful lot of news like, like we're hearing from Charlotte from Afghanistan now. No, I mean, you know, once, once you've fired the last round, then the first thing that happens is that uh, the network television and just pull people out. It's, it's no longer our war. I think what is particularly interesting is how long a war keeps you after the so-called ceasefire and how much contribution you can make. Now, you know, as you're saying, Charlotte, the, the situation, security situation, is trickier than it was. Well, of course it is, because you haven't got, although there's still thousands of, uh, of NATO so soldiers there, you haven't got that edge all mm. the time. Charlotte, did, did the, the NATO soldiers that you met there, did they express any opinion about the security situation? Um, 
Well, the green zone in the centre of Kabul is still very tightly controlled, even though it is more Afghan protected now. Um, it is still a ring of steel, although it was referred to as a colander of steel, um, indicating that there is some porous movement there that perhaps wasn't there before. Mm. Um, but generally, as I say, they're just more risk averse and there's a lot of force protection around the mentors working with the Afghans. The most important part eventually is what you do about Taliban or what Taliban does about you. Uh, and therefore, it is the Afghan government and the talks they have with Taliban, as well as the charities that have to go and talk to Ch- Taliban, is the most important development that we've seen in the past two years. Christopher, stay with us. Charlotte Cross, thank you very much. Sit rep with Kate Today marks the 200th anniversary of one of the most famous battles in history, the Battle of Waterloo, when Wellington's Allied army defeated Emperor Napoleon and changed the course of European history. This week, the battlefield site in Belgium is playing host to commemorative ceremonies and reenactment events on a massive scale. So what does Waterloo mean to you? It's the title of a new documentary talking to the descendants of those who fought there here on BFBS. Here's Captain Timothy Graham of the Royal Scots Dragoon Guards talking about the heavy cavalry charge by the Royal Scots Greys. Scots Greys carried on with their charge past the infantry and then it was only when uh, Napoleon ordered a counter-attack by his Lancer regiment that the Greys uh, rallied and then fell back into the lines. And of course this is at the point where Ensign Yurt or Sergeant Yurt at the time who was the regimental fencing master took the eagle of the 45th Regiment foot. He knew how important it was to French infantry regiments and he knew that he could break the moral cohesion of the 45th by seizing the eagle so he took it upon himself to charge and then he was ordered by the uh, nearest officer to ride the eagle back to the lines and he received on the day a field commission to become an ensign for his gallantry. Ever since the battle the regiment's been granted the honour of having the cap badge of the eagle of the 45th and underneath the eagle it says the word Waterloo which is our main battle honour. Well, Michaela Roach is the producer and presenter of the programme and joins us now from Waterloo. Good to speak to you today, Michaela. Whereabouts are you? Hi, Kate. Well, I'm right in the centre of Waterloo, just outside the Wellington Museum. Um, it's extremely busy. You can probably hear lots going on with reenactment groups who have just uh, arrived, actually, and forming a rather smart sort of uh, guard of honour outside the museum. And can you describe some of the places you visited and the key locations during the battle? Yes. Um, well, what's great about um, this area and this battlefield is that it, it's very easy to navigate um, from, from Napoleon's head, last headquarters through to Wellington's last headquarters. It's only about nine kilometres. So uh, they've basically renovated a lot of the sites that were used during the battle. And you can actually see, as I say, Napoleon's last headquarters, the Firm de Cayo, uh, which is uh, only about nine kilometres from where we are here at Wilson's last headquarters. You can visit Ugamol Farm, which has now been um, converted into an exhibition space, obviously um, defended by the 2nd Battalion, the Colstein Guards, during the battle. And you can also go to the new 1815 Memorial Museum, which is actually a subterranean museum sunk underground just next to that very famous Lion's Mound, which is the, uh, the, probably the most well-known monument on the battlefield. And what's happening there over the next few days? Well, tonight um, there's, there's a huge event, actually. Um, Victor Hugo's poem, Atonement, has been set to pyrotechnics and dramatic classical music. There's a huge show tonight, which is going to take place outside on the battlefield itself. And then moving through to tomorrow, there's a, a re- huge reenactment, um, which, which will show the French attack. 
Saturday evening, the Allied attack, and uh, to give you some idea of the scale of these, they're expecting 120,000 spectators, and uh, it will cover about 22, the size of about 22 football fields. So it is on a massive scale with, with reenactors from both sides mm. and, uh, and horses, etc. And Mackay, just briefly, just tell us a bit more about your programme, what's, what's in it and when we can hear it. Yes, yeah, so it's called uh, What Does Waterloo Mean to You? And it's it basically I've spoken to um, members of serving regiments whose antecedent units fought at the Battle of Waterloo just to get their take on it and find out um, what's relevant today and why we should remember Waterloo. Mm. And that's on at one o'clock on Sunday, this Sunday, the 21st, as a Forces Life special. All right, Michaela Roach, good to speak to you. Thank you for your time. Uh, Christopher, I get into so much trouble every time Waterloo is brought up in our household. Surely married not. to a friend. <laughs> you don't mention Trafalgar either. I see. Yeah. Yeah, it's rough, um, isn't it? Anything you want to add to any of that, just to get me well, in more trouble? No, it's it, it, the, the important I thing I mean, it was close, wasn't it? Let's face it. Oh, uh, it was bloody. Absolute bloody. I mean, the point was... I mean, there was Wellington at the end of it, and he looked around, and he said, such carnage, mm. such carnage. We don't actually celebrate many battles, do we? We talk about wars, but not many battles. The Trafalgar and Waterloo are the only ones that we really get a grip of. And will we? Uh, will what happens when in 2018 the Royal Air Force starts celebrating their hundredth anniversary, Battle of Britain? How do you all get on the field and watch that? I don't know. Interesting thought. Uh, that's all we have time for this week. My thanks to all of our contributors and, of course, to you, Christopher. Do keep your comments coming on Twitter at BFBS Sitrep. You can also uh, have the programme on the podcast and join us again next week. But from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening. I'll speak to you again next time next week. Bye-bye. And music Music. for the British forces. This is BFBS Radio 2.